0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Their names were not Melchior, Casper, and Balthazar. That was much later. The, the three wise men, once we decided there were three of them and that they were kings, they were all given names, different forms and, and different traditions, but those became their names, and then they had traditional ways of being represented when they were carving the nativity scene as well. And that's another thing, too. Uh, the wise men, they, they shouldn't technically be part of the nativity scene because they didn't arrive at the, the, the manger, if you read what Matthew says in his account, these wise men arrive later. When they find Jesus and Mary in, in the house, it's, it's a house, it's not a manger. They find them living in some sort of dwelling place. Also, Jesus is described as a child, as a paideon, not as an infant. So he's aged a little bit. And you can infer about how much time has passed if you keep reading in the passage when you see that that Herod, when he decides he's going to, to, to kill off all of the under twos because they're a threat to his throne, we can see that probably this has happened a year or two after the birth of Jesus. It took these wise men a while to get there because they came from far off. Lastly, and this one pains me, it really pains me, because we just sang what is one of my favorite uh, Christmas season songs, a Star in the East, but the star geographically was not necessarily in the east, facing east. If you've ever wondered how it is that, that they're traveling west, but following a star that's in the east, behind them. It's because the, the language here is a little tricky. You'll see this reflected in the translation that we're using in the ESV, where, where it's not described as a star in the east. It's a star that is rising. We saw the star when it, when it rose. So there, it, it's a little tricky. Um, the Greek there is, uh, let's see, forgive my pronunciation, but apa anatolon, Apa-Anatolan, to the east, literally. It's the reason why the land east of Constantinople, modern-day Turkey, was called Anatolia. It's the land to the east. But this phrase in the east is also a technical term in ancient astronomy. It refers to the rising of a star. So there's actually some technical language being used here, and the use of that language suggests something about the true identity of the wise men, which we will get to. In a moment. Here's the thing. When we come to this story with fresh eyes, we see that the story that Matthew's telling is a little bit different in its significance than the story that tradition has embellished for us. Uh, I'm one of those people who cherishes all of these little embellishments around the Christmas season. I'm not saying you should go home and and, and sort out all of the wise men from your nativity scenes and, and we'll pile them up and burn them on a pyre or anything like that. I'm just saying that there's a value in reaching behind that and seeing what it is Matthew's talking about. What is the true significance of this visit? And I think one of the layers that's worth exploring, and the thing I want to talk to you about, is is a sense of distance in the story. There's a distance between revelation on the one hand and what we do with it on the other. So two texts... To zero in on in this passage. We're looking at Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, but I really want to look at Herod's words. These are fascinating to me. In Matthew 2, 8, Herod says to the wise men, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him, which is exactly right. King Herod says precisely what he ought to say in this situation. If the Messiah has come, then he should want to know where this child is, and he should want to go and bow down and worship him. And my hope for all of us would be that we could wholeheartedly speak the words that Herod spoke and mean them. But that's the kicker. Herod speaks them, but as we discover, he doesn't mean them. There is a vast gulf between what he says about the revelation of Christ and what he actually does with it what he does with it, very different. But that revelation comes to us in, in many ways. As we've seen over the last few weeks, throughout the Old Testament, this plan of redemption is being revealed piece by piece. At the very end of the book of Revelation, though, Jesus hands it to us. Jesus voices the, 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 the substance of the revelation. You find this in Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Here's Jesus declaring himself to be the Messiah, the promised one, the root of David and also his descendant, the heir to David's throne, the establisher, the king of this spiritual kingdom. Jesus says it. That's the revelation of Christ. But what do you do with it? What do you do with it? What do you say to Jesus when Jesus speaks those words, when he declares himself the Messiah? Everyone in Matthew 2 is responding to that revelation. You see the response of the magi, the wise men. You see the way the priests and the scribes respond, and you see the way King Herod describes it, how he answers as well. They have signs from God. And they also have Scripture, which they consult. Herod speaks the right words, but his heart is wrong. There's a distance between the reality of Christ's revelation and his response to it. The same thing is true for the priests and the scribes, and that's what I want to talk about. When we see Christ revealed to us, how do we answer? Do we answer with indifference or fear? Or do we answer by following him? I want to talk about the wise men and who they really were. But first, I'd like to talk about the scribes and the priests a little bit. It's interesting, Herod, when he's faced with this weird situation, he is the king. The the Roman Empire has made Herod and his dynasty kings of the region. He's not himself ethnically a Jew, he comes from outside of Israel, but he's been made king and he practices the Jewish religion. He's a great builder. He's a great sort of culture maker. He makes, including the the temple, where people worship in Jesus' day. Herod is the guy who did construction work on that. He's remembered as Herod the Great. But he was also Herod the Ruthless. Greatness and ruthlessness are often combined. Herod is uh, a little bit like a picture of one of those Old Testament kings of Israel. He's got the office, but he doesn't use it the way that he ought to. And when these magi come And they say, we're looking for the king who has been born in Israel. He's troubled, and he turns to his advisors. He gathers together the chief priests and the scribes, people who ought to be able to instruct him. So the magi, they've followed an astronomical sign. They've seen a star in the skies. They've taken it to be a sign of the birth of a king, and so they've come to follow this. Herod's looking for more context. He wants to understand what's going on. And so he gathers together experts. Matthew describes them as chief priests and scribes. And what you have to understand is these are two distinct parties. The chief priests would have come from a faction uh, you may have heard of over the Sadducees. Whereas the scribes are all experts in the law, they tend to be Pharisees. Uh, The apostle Paul, for example, is one of them, a man who is an expert in the law. This isn't a, a perfect representation of, of the division lines, but you may be familiar with the argument between the Sadducees and the Pharisees over the reality of the resurrection. Uh, Pharisees believe in it. Sadducees do not believe in a bodily resurrection. You might think of it as sort of like uh, liberals and fundamentalists all together to consult. You can imagine a meeting like that could be pretty interesting. To you get together, the, the, the chief priests, who are kind of the guys in power, the guys that have the institutional clout. But then you bring together the guys who are like, you know what? I don't care about the fancy buildings. I have knowledge of scripture. And you bring them together and you consult them. And interestingly, they all agree. This isn't a hard one. They don't have to form a study committee and go back and research this. When Herod says, where will the Christ be born? They're like, oh, obviously that's going to be in Bethlehem of Judea because the prophet Micah says so. They go back to scripture, they look at the prophecies of Micah, and they find the passage that is quoted for us. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Easy. But it is strange that the chief priests and the scribes, as expert as they are, as much knowledge as they possess, are not already on top of this. They do turn to Scripture, and they know exactly where to go, and they understand the prophecies of the Messiah, but they don't seem to have been looking because they need wise men from the Far East to come and prompt the question. They need the king to consult them before it even comes up. And the interesting thing is they don't even follow up on this. Wise men from the East come and say, we've seen a star that suggests the birth of your Messiah? And then the king turns to them and says, is this right? Does this fit with the prophecy? And they're like, oh, yeah, it totally does. And that's where they leave it. The wise men continue to Bethlehem, and it's not like that's a long journey from Jerusalem. There's no reason why the the chief priests and the scribes couldn't tag along, why they couldn't go to see the Messiah as well, why they couldn't be filled with this desire to see what God is doing, but they're not. They do their duty. They advise the king. They enjoy the prestige of coming up with the right answer, and then they're done, and they move on, and that's it. The religious leaders, whether they are liberal or fundamentalist, however you want to think of them, they are apparently indifferent to the birth of the Messiah. I'm sure they've heard it all before. So many claiming to be the Messiah that just doesn't interest them What was interesting to them was probably just the idea of being like in tension with one another, fighting with one another for the ear of the king. That was what the whole thing was about, advising the king beyond that, not a big deal. In his commentary, Richard Glover writes, It is strange how much the scribes knew and what little use they made of it. Which makes them seem pretty negligent. But I feel a little guilty, too, reading those words. Because I can recognize myself, and perhaps you can recognize yourself in that description. Knowledge doesn't always lead to action. Sometimes knowledge is an excuse we use to avoid action. For those of us with knowledge of scripture, there is a real danger that expertise will blunt our sense of urgency I know about the Revelation. I know a lot about the Revelation. I can explain to you arcane theories and interpretations about the Revelation, but far be it for me to act on it. For Harry Potter fans... I just want to recommend a book you can move on to, Susanna Clarke's book, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I always describe this as a sort of grown-up Harry Potter, but I mean it in the most uncondescending way when I say that. If you read the book, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's, It's dense and complicated. It's about the revival of English magic during the age of Jane Austen. And there's this group of English gentlemen, a society that gets together to study these arcane books, to research the topic of magic. They're all magicians, but it's not what you think. They get together, they're all very well-dressed, very affluent guys. They, They hold symposiums, they write papers, but they don't actually do magic. In fact, to do magic would be like doing work. It is beneath them because they're gentlemen. So they describe themselves as theoretical magicians. Theoretical magicians. They would never stoop to actually do it. And I think sometimes we are guilty of being theoretical believers in the same sense, thinking that what we've been called to do in Christ is to amass knowledge, to be the person that when other people come to you and say, where will the Messiah be born? You're like, oh, come on. This is too easy. Turn to Micah 5. The answers are there. And yet not follow ourselves. Not actually act on the knowledge we have. The priests and the scribes should know this. They should be on top of it. They shouldn't need wise men from the east to raise the question for them. And we shouldn't either. When the bright morning star shines, don't greet it with indifference. The way that the chief priests do. Don't try to measure it and quantify it and keep it in its corner and not act on it, not live it the way that the scribes do. When the bright morning star dawns, just follow it. Just follow it. You can answer Revelation with indifference, but don't do it. You can also answer with fear, like Herod does. It's interesting, as removed as his advisors seem, Herod is not at all uh, complacent about what's taking place. You would think, if you were a great king, if you were a ruthless king who was always advancing the interests of your kingdom, and somebody came along, some uh, crackpot wise men from the Far East came along and said, we've been following a star in the sky to to be shown where where the king is being born, the king prophesied in these ancient prophecies like hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Um, you would think Herod would be, you know, I actually have bigger fish to fry. This is not a big deal. This is not something I need to concern myself with. But that's not how he reacts at all. He takes this very seriously. He is troubled by it. He's threatened. He is threatened by it. The reason is Herod has a kingdom to lose. Matthew, in telling this story, frames the story in terms of kingship. The question that we should be looking at here, the thing we should be sensitive to, is the idea of kingdoms and kingship. Who is the king is the question that we should be most alive to here. The wise men are not kings, as I said. Herod is a king, King Herod. And yet, When the wise men come, when the magi come, they come in search of a king. The question that they ask to Herod is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not who has been born to be the future heir of the kingdom, but who has been born king. That's an awkward phraseology to to use when speaking to the current king. Your majesty... Could you point us in the direction of the king of your land, who's been born? It's clearly not you. Where would we find that guy? Herod is the king. The king is being asked, where can we find the true king? It's not surprising that he's troubled by this, because he knows the prophecies. He knows the prophecy of the Messiah to come. He knows there is a king to come and a kingdom to come. Like the disciples of Jesus, he doesn't understand the nature of the kingdom. He sees it as a direct threat to his own kingdom. If there is a king who has been born a Messiah, a king in the line of David, then how can Herod continue to be king? Unlike the priests and the scribes, the king cannot be indifferent to this revelation, because for him, everything that he's built, everything that he's worked for is at stake in the way this question is answered. So he responds with fear. He sees immediately what so many of us fail to see, which is that if Jesus is king, then he is not. If Jesus is born to be king, then Herod is not. If Jesus is king, then you are not. And everything is at stake. Everything that you love, everything that you've worked for, everything that you've built, everything that you have put your stamp on, everything that you take pride in is at stake. Because if Jesus is king, then he is king over that. And you are not. Herod perceives clearly what the circumstances are. And he also knows this. He knows that what we're talking about is the Christ. It is the Messiah. When he asks his advisors for advice, he asks them, where will the Christ be born? Where will the Messiah be born? So he understands when the Magi come, the exact significance of what is taking place. He knows that this is the birth of the Messiah that they're referring to. He also knows The proper response to it is to bow down and worship, which is why he speaks those words to them, those deceitful words. Go and find him. Come and tell me, and I will come and worship him too. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is king, then that is the only possible response. Herod, too, must worship him. But, of course, there's a lot of distance between his words and his heart. He has no intention of worshiping the Messiah. His intention is to snuff him out. He knows that if the Messiah has come, he ought to bow down and worship, but instead he's going to fight. He's fearful, and he's going to resist. He feels the threat that Jesus represents, and instead of following the revelation, he's determined to fight it. This is all about losing your authority for Herod and for us. If Jesus is king, then you are not. There are a lot of people who reject the gospel, who reject the kingdom, and they do it because they see exactly what it means. They understand something that that some people who profess faith in Christ don't see. They recognize that if I answer this revelation, if I bow down and worship, then I'm giving up my authority. I am losing my sovereignty over myself, over my life. A lot of us think that we can somehow follow Jesus without doing that. That maybe there's a way that Jesus can sort of be king of, of his part and I can be king of my part. That we can share sovereignty. And sure, there might be some, some gray areas where Jesus and I have to consult over what should be done. Occasionally I may even have to defer to him as a greater king. But for the most part, I can follow Jesus without losing the authority that I have over my life. I can be king over my domain. Jesus can be king over his, and that can work just fine. And in that case, those who reject the gospel actually see more clearly than those who pay lip service to it. Herod is right to be afraid, because the birth of Jesus does mean the end of all earthly powers. It does mean that Jesus will reign over all other kings, and that every knee will bow. This is true, and we should see it. If you follow the bright morning star, you don't get to wear your crown. If you follow the bright morning star, you have to take your crown off. And the only way you can do that is to realize that that crown was never meant for your head. You were only ever given it so that you could cast it at his feet. That's what our authority is, our crown is for to throw it at the feet of Christ, the bright morning star. How can you say Herod's words and actually mean them, to give up so much? I'm as tempted as anyone to hold on to my crowns. I don't want to give up my own authority. I don't want to do what I don't want to do. How can you say those words and actually mean it, that I, a king, will step off my throne and I will put my crown at the feet of Jesus. I don't know. I don't know how you can say those words. And that's why the only answer I have to the question is to look to Christ. I can't look back at my own life and say, well, there was the moment where I decided for myself that I would be better than those other people who hold on to their crowns, that I would be more humble. It's not in my nature. And yet it happens. And I can only look to Christ for an explanation. If you struggle with that, and we all do, all I can say to you is to look to Christ, to his grace, to give you the grace to cede that authority. Because whatever we've done, those of us who believe, we've done it only because of Christ and what he's done in us, his grace. Don't answer with indifference like the scribes, and don't answer with fear like the king. Instead, answer by following, the way the magi do. Magi is the word in the Greek that's used, magoi, uh, in order to describe what we are calling the wise men here. Uh, wise men is, is a, an easier term than, than magi to say, but also it has less of a problem. There's a reason why magi is an unfortunate term to have to use. As a modern-day Christian, it's a little bit embarrassing because magi, wise men in the ancient world, were magicians. It's where we get our word mage from, Uh, magic, that sort of thing. That's what these guys were. They were magicians. They were astrologers, advisors to kings. They were like the, the, the chief priests and scribes of a pagan lord. That's what magi were. They surrounded the throne of all of the pagan rulers in the area. When Moses and Aaron went to confront Pharaoh, they do that miraculous deed where they throw down their staffs and they become snakes. Pharaoh doesn't say, whoa, I'm done. You guys have overcome me. Nobody in Egypt can do that. No, he calls on his magicians and they throw down their staves. They become snakes too. And then their snakes get eaten. And it's all really strange but, but you see, there's something going on. Pharaoh has some magicians himself. He has wise men and sorcerers who he turns to for assistance. In Babylon, when Daniel is carried away to Babylon, he has to match wits with Nebuchadnezzar's magicians and his enchanters and his astrologers. And when he wins, Nebuchadnezzar makes him the chief of them. Daniel actually becomes like the chief of the magi, the, the head magician, which is a strange thing to think about an Old Testament prophet. All of this magic and astrology is embarrassing. It's embarrassing in the tradition, in the Christian tradition, because all of that is wrong. Sorcery is condemned by scripture. You shouldn't do those things. It's sinful to do it. So it's embarrassing to have these magi come and, and adore Christ. It would be better if they were kings. But it's also embarrassing in the 21st century because, of course, astrology and magic and all that stuff, it's, it's been debunked as foolishness. So I don't know. It's sort of like saying at, at the Nativity, Jesus was surrounded by shepherds and like charlatans from the carnival or something. Right? Guys who believed that they somehow could interpret the, the signs in the sky and predict the future. It's all very weird. It would be more comforting to our modern ears if uh, God had assembled Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins and maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson to gather around the manger and, and bring their gifts to baby Jesus. In a weird way, that's kind of what he's done, though. I admit that the magi of the ancient world were, were wrong about a lot of stuff and, and really didn't understand the way God's world worked. And yet, they were, in a sense, the, the scientists, the experts of their day. It's the reason why they were consulted. These were, were literate people who, who had read widely and, and understood more than other people did, even where they went astray. And, and so they had a kind of knowledge knowledge I'm sure that 100 or 200 or 1,000 years from now, people will look back at, at our experts today and not be able to tell much difference between the two, just as we're not very impressed with the scientists of the 1500s. And they seem basically like astrologers and charlatans to us in comparison. God actually goes one better, though, than assembling, like, the scientific experts of his day, the magi. Although they have that kind of authority, it's how they use it that really matters here. These are the men who advise kings. These are the ones you surround yourself with for wise counsel, for advice. They are, in fact, king makers. The approval of this court of thinkers, of experts. is very important to secure the power of a king. In the same way that a king should be surrounded by generals, he should also be surrounded by wise counselors like this. It's one of the hallmarks of a great and glorious king. Not only that he was served by great commanders in the field, but also that he was served by great scientists. In the Renaissance, they understood this. The king of France actually hired Leonardo da Vinci to come to his court. That's a pretty good get. To have Leonardo da Vinci as your wise man, pretty good. Even to this day, in addition to great military strength, we also try to have good counselors and advice around. It just goes with kingship. So in the same way that God sent shepherds to surround the manger, shepherds which picture King David, the shepherd king, now it seems he's also surrounded the boy king with wise men. The advisors of great kings have now come together around this child and given their gifts to him in acknowledgement of his kingship, and that's why it matters. What God is signaling by bringing these magi across great distance to bow down and worship the boy Jesus, he is showing, he is giving signs, evidence, proof of the kingship of Jesus, that his is indeed a real kingdom. It's important, too, to think where these magi came from. We don't know exactly where they came from. We do know from the language they all came from the same place, and we know it's to the east. If you start off in Jerusalem and you start walking east, eventually you're going to reach this place called Persia. There was this great Persian Empire, the Parthian Empire, they called it at the time. This is the empire that that centuries later would would be locked in an annihilation battle with the Christian Roman Empire. In Persia, they were all Zoroastrians, they worshipped a god of fire. And in the city of Babylon, in that empire, for centuries, there was this tradition of studying the stars, looking for signs. The Magi, the wise men of Babylon, were were noted for this. Perhaps the greatest Magi of Babylon was the prophet Daniel, who was made their chief. It's very strange to think about the connection here. Remember, it is in exile, as the physical kingdom of Israel is collapsing, that God's prophets begin to see visions of the kingdom to come that there will be a king to come, a king whose reign will be everlasting. And now, at the birth of that king, God sends wise men from that land of exile to pay homage. It's come full circle. Once Israel bowed to Babylon, but now Babylon bows to Israel. It's another full circle that's important here in Matthew's Gospel, The wise men, these Gentiles, are the first to worship the Messiah. So at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you have Gentiles worshiping King Jesus. At the end of the gospel, you have King Jesus giving his great commission to his followers to go out to the nations, to go out into the world and make disciples, to make worshipers, to see the nations bow down. That's the epiphany that we celebrate. The revelation that we celebrate is the revelation of Christ to the world, to the Gentiles. This is the mystery that Paul describes in Ephesians 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Magi had studied the truth that had been handed down to them, perhaps from Daniel himself, and they followed the sign and they listened to the Spirit when they had the dream telling them to go back another way. They listened, they followed. They were curious to know what was going on, but it cost them. These were men of position who lived comfortable lives and they left them behind to embark on a perilous journey at risk to themselves. They risked the loss of their position and their power. They risked ridicule for putting their faith in these ancient teachings and in the stars above. They had to leave their own king behind and pay homage to another. And they had to part with their gifts. They had to give up their gifts to this king. And they had to bow down and worship him. Humanly speaking, if we ignore the bright morning star... It's because it costs too much not to. Because you have to give him everything. Christ is all demanding. He wants your gifts, the gifts that you have. He wants you to use them for his honor and glory. He wants you to bow down and worship him. He wants it all. Thank you for listening.